0: You are listening to The Light of Today with the powerful, life-changing Word of Christ that heals, delivers, transforms, and fills you with the Holy Spirit. Let God's truth burst forth into your heart. Stay tuned to The Light of Today with Chris Palmer.
1: A better grasp on the Old Testament. Okay, well today uh, I told you that I'm going to begin taking it systematic step-by-step going through the Word of God. We have... Seven weeks for this in-depth study of how to actually study the Bible. Um, and as I said before, my desire is to really challenge your thinking, to make you think to yourself. If you walk out of here saying, man, I don't even I don't even know the Bible, then I've done a good job um, <laughs> making you realize. Because I know for one thing, I'm a person who's earning my master's degree in the Word of God. And as much as I've read this book and even written books about this book, there's still a lot that I know that I have to learn and understand about it. So once you get to that point where you say, well, I know a lot about the Word of God, you're in a dangerous position, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to take it step by step. Um, before Christmas, I talked about Old Testament law, what the law has placed in our lives, about the law, um, because we get mixed up. We talked about, like I said, the Old Testament, but tonight we're going to go into the poetic books of the Bible, and we're going to talk about Old Testament poetry. Someone say Poetry. 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 For people that think that the Bible is just a bunch of letters and the Bible is just a bunch of narrative, you're going to jip yourself with the fact that God has used all genres to speak to us. If you look in the Bible, you're going to see songs and lamentations. You're going to see... Why sayings, which are nuggets like Proverbs, you'll see that there's, like I said, epistles and letters, we'll talk about that, there's ap- apocalyptic literature, we don't necessarily have that genre nowadays, but back then it was, it was very popular in the days of the New Testament to write end time literature, even amongst the popular Greco-Roman world, and um, you also have things that are in there like, um, there's jokes in the Bible, there's people that, all sorts of stuff. And, uh, but one of the things I want to focus on is uh, the poetry books in the Bible. Now, let me read to you what the Bible says about it. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourself, making music in your heart to the Lord, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in Colossians three sixteen, Let the message of Christ... In all its richness, fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in your hearts unto the Lord. You will find that when Paul is saying sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, he was referring to Christian songs at the time, but he was also referring to the book of Psalms. When you study the book of Psalms, you'll find out that there are 150 collections. These were what you would call temple hymnals. You know you go to church now, right? Mm -hmm. You see that there's like, Hymnals, Or you go to, to the old Baptist church and they say, turn to song selection number 176 and you open it up and you sing that song. You know, you say, Who, whose idea was this? Well, if you were in the temple of Solomon, when it was restored after the Babylonian exile, they had their own temple hymnals. And this is what we have as the book of Psalms. It was a very popular book that was known amongst Jesus' day. And these are, most of them were written by David. Some of them were written by Solomon. Some of them were written by uh, Asaph. But somebody, after the Babylonian exile, came together and took all of the popular... If you could close this door, Sharp, please. Or someone close the door. Someone uh, came along and says, You know what? These We have all these great songs of David's distress. All these great songs that talk about Israel's history. Why don't we put them all together and use those as something that we can use in the temple to give honor to God. And they took those psalms and they put music to them and it became something that was very popular in Israel's day. And I'm saying all that to say this, that poetry is something that God has chosen from the Word of God to teach and use because it's extremely different from a letter. How many of you have ever read an instruction manual on a microwave? Never mm-hmm. read an instruction manual when you get a car? How's it read? Take the seat belt, put it in the buckle, do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. Furthermore, next step, secondly, thirdly, fourthly, blah, blah, blah. And it's very meticulous, it's very precise, it's very to the point, it's very exact and matter of fact. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Do you know that this is how the church has become in a lot of word circles? We have become very technical, very A, B, C, D, point by point by point by point. And you become this way when you only focus on the writings of the epistles and the letters. When you focus on the mind of Paul, because the Apostle Paul was a very technical uh, writer. When you look at the letters, he was a lawyer arguing for his case. He uses words like furthermore and indeed, and because of this in his letters. But you will not see this when you go to the poetic books of the Bible. And I'm going to say this and write this down. If you're taking notes, God gave to you the poetic books of the of the po not just the poetic books. God gave to you poetry in the Bible because He is feeding your emotions. Mm. We have gotten away from allowing God to touch and speak to our emotions in the church someone says that's too much emotionalism or well, who gave to you your emotions and you say well there's someone I believe there should be crying in the church I yes. believe there should be weeping in the church I believe there should be running in the church I believe that there because listen to this when you don't have a release for your emotions you know what you'll have? Fanaticism mm-hmm. people will just go and somehow they need an emotional release and they'll come up with it themselves because when you hear something technical all the time you're like well I gotta release my emotions somehow and so, you have a God that says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to appeal to man's emotions and I'm going to allow this into the Word of God. So someone say, it's okay to use my emotions. It's
0: okay, it's okay to use my emotions.
1: Okay. So, um, in understanding this, let's look at a verse real quick and you can go to Psalm chapter 143 and I want to just show you just how God emphasized the emotions in the Bible. If you listen to a song and you like it, the chances are it's going to touch your emotions somehow. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. If you listen to a movie and you go to see it a second time, it doesn't have to be a love movie. It could be an action movie. Something, it it drove you inside, right? Got your emotions going. I went to the gym the other day and I didn't play praise and worship when I was there. Mm -hmm. Wrong emotion. So what I did is I put on YouTube channel um, gym music, and it's all this techno, dun, 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 dun. just drives a certain emotion. It makes you want to lift weights and get big and huge and eat something, right? Crush something. Take a barbell and throw it through the window. You know, you get tough. You're trying to stir your emotions up. Well, what do you think God does in the Word of God when you read the Psalms? He's trying to hit certain aspects of your emotions because as a being, you're supposed to connect to God in here. Okay, listen to this, okay? Listen to this, and... You know, I know some of our backgrounds, and I'm not going to say anything's wrong with them, but let's open up our minds a little bit from and get away from the teaching to say, we're just, you know, faith is not a feeling. Faith has a lot to do with your feelings. It's hard to be in faith when your feelings are contrary. Faith, God, like I, I said before, wants to use your emotions to get them going in the right direction. Listen to this, okay? This is an inspired psalm, a psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my plea. Answer me because you are faithful and righteous. Don't put your servant on trial, for no one he is innocent before you. My enemy has chased me, he's knocked me to the ground, and forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. I am losing all hope, and I am paralyzed with fear. I remember the days of old, I ponder your great works and think about what you've done. I lift my hands to you in prayer, I thirst for you as parched land, thirst for rain, come quickly and answer me, for my depression is deepening. Don't turn away from me or I will die. Let me hear your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I run for you to hide me. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. For the glory of your name, O Lord, preserve my life. Because of your faithfulness, bring me out of distress. And your unfailing love, silence my enemies, and destroy my foes, for I am your servant. Do you hear emotion in here? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I can tell you in the first verse, there's desperation. Hear my plea, O God. This isn't a guy, this is, this is beggary. God, hear my plea. If you don't hear it, who's going to hear it? Nobody else will listen to my case. Mm-hmm. Do you see a guy just hear my plea, oh God? Or do you see David, a psalmist, when he's being chased down and he's in misery and after he's gone through this whole thing with Solomon and now he's going through this thing with his son Absalom who wants to take his kingdom for him. He's saying, God, my enemies chase me. My own sons knock me to the ground. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about how things are. He didn't say, well, I ain't really chasing me. God, no, they're not chasing me. I just, no, no, I had a bad confession. No, he's telling you how it is. This is what's going on, God. And then he says, I'm losing all hope. Now you see a prayer with hopelessness and fear in it. Then you see how he talks about how things are. talks about depression, trusting God. I think that what's very interesting about this right here is that when you get into the idea that everything's just supposed to be positive to confession all the time. You know what I like more than po- I believe you should confess the Word of God. But you know what I believe what precedes positive confession is honest confession. That we have to tell God, this is how it is. I am upset. The other day when I went in prayer, I was upset about something. I told God how it was. I said, God, this is how it is. Now now give me the right mindset about it. I think God appreciates when we do something like that. And He gives you the poetic books to understand this. Amen. (laughs) And so um, we need to use our emotions now. I want to talk to you about how to understand poetry from the Word of God and get a grasp on this genre. Is that okay with you tonight?
0: Amen.
1: Okay, let me say this. Um, I got a lot of notes for you. So because poetry is by nature artistic, Mm -hmm. it can be difficult to define how we approach it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But we're going to see here that there are certain qualities about poetry that makes it poetry. So when you see, you say, okay, this is poetry, now let's approach it. The first thing about Old Testament poetry is that it is very abrupt. If you take a notes, you can write this down. It's very abrupt. Now, I told you how it differs, so listen to this. You look at Old Testament narratives and you find out that they use a lot of words to describe what Samuel's doing, what Joseph's doing. You know, we looked at these verses yesterday. But in poetry, the author or the narrator, whoever you want to call it, the author, is not mincing words. He's not saying in five words what he can say in two. Okay? And so there are, in Old Testament poetry, very short Compact lines and verses, and if you don't read them right, you are not going. You can get the meaning, but you're not going to get the full meaning of what the writer is trying to say. Because what the writer is trying to say is not in his abundance of words; it's found in his lack of words. Let me give you an example. You know, uh, you're married, and your spouse does something that that. um, Maybe you do something you, you, you don't think your spouse likes, and you say, are you mad? And they go, no. And they walk away. Okay. The fact that they use the word no, just that quick, tells you they're mad. Yeah. Right? <laughs> or they say, um, how was your day? Whatever. They just walk by. What do they tell you? They don't really want to talk about their day. Right. Because it's not, they didn't tell you that, but you caught it because they used such a terse, mm-hmm. abrupt way of speaking. And this is how the Bible does it sometimes. And you can learn by people's responses. Oh, they're upset. They're frustrated. And you miss it. You miss the tone when you don't catch this. Um, So uh, let's go to Judges chapter 5, 25. Let me show you something interesting. The way that poetry is defined is that it has a specific word order to it. The people that were writing the the Old Testament... We're very, very intelligent writers. So Judges chapter 5, 25. This is the Song of Deborah. And it's a song, but it has poetic elements in it. Let me show you something. Um, let me pull it up here. Okay, now listen how it reads in the New, New Living Translation here. So Sarah asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fitful noble, she brought him yogurt. This is how it reads literally in the Young's uh, translation. And this is a translation, that, that the Young's literal translation. If you want something that's challenging to read, but it puts it literally word by word in the Hebrew, it's is a good translation for you, unless you understand Hebrew. And this is what it says. Water he asked, milk she gave, and a lordly dish she brought near butter. <laughs> Do you catch the poetry now? You see it? If you were a Hebrew mind, you'd say, oh, this is, this is rhyme and reason. This is measures to it. It's song. Where's the song? It's the Sarah asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for noble, she brought him yogurt. It's hardly poetic. But in the Hebrew, water he asked, milk she gave, and a lordly dish she brought near butter. Now you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. There's music in the Bible going on. And now we're opening up the meaning for you just a little bit that this is now not necessarily supposed to be technical. We're looking at something that's supposed to evoke a lot of emotion. And so um, you start seeing that, and it helps you to understand what you're supposed to do with this. You hear what I'm saying here? Now, uh, yesterday I put a tweet out, because uh, there was a baseball pitcher who was just given a contract for $210 million. And I tweeted and said, it's because of Max Scherzer that fans have to... Spend $18 for a slice of pizza and a Pepsi at a ball game. Now, somebody decided to retweet me, or tweet back to me and say, um, well, what about Prince Fielder and what about Miguel Cabrera and what about... And they went on and on with a bunch of players. And I said to them, I'm using Max Scherzer as synecdoche to represent all the overpaid players. And then they said, well, $18, I don't know what stadium you're using. And I says, I'm also using $18 as hyperbole to represent anger at high prices. It's maybe not 18 maybe it's 12 So you have these people that are being technical. You're missing what I'm saying. Uh, what, I, what am I really saying? I'm mad that there are all a bunch of overpaid players that are causing fans that are blue-collared workers that have to pay all this money to eat at a baseball game. But we don't have the money to eat. And you're gonna go on your contract, so you want to turn into an argument. But what am I really saying? I'm mad at overplayed baseball players. Do you know that's what we do with the Bible? We split words over, or split hairs over words, and you miss the whole meaning of what someone's trying to say. So it helps you. Listen, no doctrine, no belief can be based on one word and one translation and one Bible. If that's the case, it's someone reading in what the Bible, what they want to say. If someone does not want you to use a particular translation of the Bible because it won't back what they believe about the Bible, then it's wrong. You should be able to support whatever God's word says in no matter what translation you use. I catch what I'm saying tonight. Okay, let's talk about the structure of... Uh, of uh, poetry in the Word of God. This is a long word. It's going to get you tongue twisted and tongue tied. It's called parallelism. Parallelism. This is really going to help you understand how the Psalms go. Because this is how the Psalms were written. Are you enjoying this tonight? Yes. Mm -hmm. Parallelism is this. I'm going to explain it. Just write this down. The repetition of patterns in adjoining lines. Parallelism is the repetition of patterns in, one or more, in two or more lines. The line represents more of the thought than the sentence. So usually one thought, one thought, only one thought is expressed by multiple lines. So if you have two or three lines, you're not going to get the full thought until you read all the lines. Mm-hmm. So, do you see why this is going to be important now? Because if you take one line, you better take the other, or you've missed the intent of the reader. Then you know what—you have a half truth. It's like if you had a press release that says scientists have discovered scientists f- discovered a meteor headed for the Earth, and then the next line says, "At least they thought." Okay. Well, what if you took the first line? Everyone's going to be heading for the bomb shelters. But what if he took the second line? Everybody might say, well, thank God the sign is wrong. Alright? Mm-hmm. Right? So we have to find out what the lines are saying. So um, let's look at Hebrews twelve excuse me, Proverbs twelve five. Let's look at this. And you're gonna see that in the original Hebrew, you can get it in Young's literal translation, it's pretty close. Um, just how the Hebrews were taking this. Now let's read it in, the new, the NLT, and I know what the question is going to be after tonight's class is, so what? You know, I, I was in a, a class one time, and some guy read a 15-page thesis statement about mirror reading from the book of Galatians. <laughs> and afterwards, he asked, is there any questions? And his professor was sitting there. And it was a very brilliant, very, very deep analytical, far beyond what a lay person can understand. Even me as a seminary student, I just had a hard time understanding what in God's name he was talking about. So I raised my hand and says, and what's the big deal? So? And the professor started laughing. He says, you better answer that question because that's the so what question. Just tell us, so what? So what is it? So you're going to ask me, so what, Chris? What's the big deal? Well, the so what to all this is, I want you to read the Psalms better. All right. Okay, Proverbs 12, or poetry, whether it be in Proverbs or Psalms. Okay, Proverbs 12, 5. The plans of the godly are just. The advice of the wicked is treacherous. Do you know what the Proverbs, you know what the, um, do you know what the uh, original Hebrew says? Translated like this. You ready for it? Plans of the righteous are Justice. Counsels of the wicked deceit. It's like a code you got right here. Plans of the righteous justice. Counsels of the wicked deceit. Now watch this. In each, in the original Hebrew, each line has three words. Three words to this line. Three words to this line. Plans of the righteous justice. Plans of the, uh, counsels of the wicked Deceit. Do you know if you read that in your back in, in in days of Israel, old Israel, you wouldn't forget that. And not only that, you'll notice right here that each word in each part of the line is the same part of speech and corresponds to the word in the second line: plans versus counsels of the righteous versus of the wicked, justice versus deceit. Now, knowing that, look at it again in the Lou Living translation: the plans of the godly are just. The advice of the wicked is treacherous. Do you see it's one thought now? Mm -hmm. What is the one thought? The one thought is very simple. That the way of the righteous is better than the way of the ungodly. In this area in particular, it comes down to what they speak as far as direction for your life. But you know how you miss out? You say the plans of the godly are just. Glory to God. No, no, no. It's be, it is a contrastive element that's trying to show you why you should be godly and why you should listen to godly people. Are you catching this? Yeah. Okay. That's parallelism. So there are three different types of parallelism. Are you ready for these?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you guys like this?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you don't grow by hype. You're know, talking about a service with a bunch of hype. and you're not gonna, It's not going to make you grow. This will help you to grow. There are three different types of parallelism. The first one is synonymous. basically in synonymous parallelism in dealing with uh, biblical poetry, the second line repeats the same idea as the first. Have you ever heard people preach and they say something and it just it's not quite there when they say it. So what do they say? It, well in other words, right? When you hear someone say in in speech class, you don't, you're trying to stay away from using this this term in other words. Because if you're saying it in other words, you're not, you weren't clear the first time. Do you get what I'm saying? You know, you say Jesus died on the cross. Well, in other words, um, what this means for us. No, 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 no. You should have said it clear the first time. You were basically thinking while you were talking and you realized it wasn't clear for you. So you're going to try and clarify it. So it's okay to do that. I might, I do it sometimes, or maybe more than I think. But, you'll find that in Old Testament poetry, he tries to put it to you in a different way. He says it once, and then he says, let me show it to you in a different light. Here's one that we all know. Here's synonymous parallelism. And he is bruised for our trans, and he is pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Do you see that this is basically the same thing? Right? What's the thought? Jesus had to suffer. Someone says, well, see, he was pierced for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. And you're going to try and split hairs over this and try and come up with a whole theological meaning. Well, you know, he just... No, 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 no. It's saying the same thing right here. So we miss out on so much because we don't look at the big picture. And what really matters is that there was the Messiah, this is a messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah chapter 53 that's prophesying about what this forerunner who's going to come and save the people of Israel. They didn't see a church back then. You, read, you can't read the church in Isaiah 53. You have to read Israel into Isaiah 53 and this was going to be the Messiah who was going to come and redeem Israel and then through his grace and his kindness he was going to allow the Gentiles to come in and be part of this kingdom. Alright. Uh, Psalm chapter 2 verse 4. He who is sitting at the heavens doth laugh. The Lord mocks at them. Okay, do you see how this is one idea? Are you guys here tonight? Mm-hmm. Is this interesting? Amen.
0: Psalm
1: 2, 4. He who is sitting in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks at him. So this is basically the same thing. Because now watch this. If all you had was the Lord is sitting in the heaven. Well, and he laughs. He's laughing, he's mocking somebody. But the next verse tells you the Lord mocks him. Well, if he's mocking them, he's laughing. So it really is the same idea. Parallelism can be defined like this. One, one theologian says it this way. A, the first line is A, and the second line, B, is what is more B. So it's like saying A and what is more B. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. So you say line A, and what is more, this line here. So you can say... Uh, Chris went to the mall today. Chris likes to go shopping. Chris went to the mall today, and what is more, Chris likes to go shopping. One thought. You got it? Mm -hmm. This is going to help you read the Psalms, okay? The next type of parallelism is developmental. Is this boring, you guys, tonight? No. Okay, we're going to show you some interesting stuff here in a second. This means that a second line can give a reason... Or provide an answer. It provides you an answer for something. Here he is in Psalm thirty-one twenty-one. Blessed be the Lord. Well, why? Why should blessed be the Lord? For he has wonderfully shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Now, if you had the uh, un- the ability to understand Hebrew, um, scales, you would see that this is all rhyming in some way or degree or another. It's it's very, it's got the same, um, uh, what's the word I'm th- trying to think of, it has uh, measures to it. Mm-hmm. But in the same sense, the lines are showing each other, but this is giving you a reason. It's not just the same idea, it's providing more. Psalm 119 verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So now it's giving to you an answer. Okay? Um, And the next one form of parallelism is illustrative or emblematic, which means that the first line conveys an idea and the second line illustrates it with an example or a symbol. I'll give you an example myself. O Jehovah, my Lord, my strength, my salvation, line one. Line two, thou hast covered my head in the day of armor. So basically... God is my salvation. Well, illustrate it to me. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Now, did he literally cover his head? No, he's speaking metaphorically. The covering of the head represents protection at that time. Right? Okay. So, I'm telling you all this to be aware when you're reading. Look at it. And we're going to do an exercise in just a second to see how it works. Okay? And then there's contrastive. Which means that the lines are put, are expo- just exposed Next to one another. Remember we talked about how the Bible in the Old Testament loves to take two characters who are completely opposite and put them in the same scenario, mash them together, and just show how it doesn't work. You have Saw who is this tall... the Bible calls good looking from a rich family and then you have David who is the underdog poor, nobody's a stepchild kept in the broom closet but he's got a heart that's ready to fight and the Bible puts him into a whole book for Samuel and they square off and David becomes a champion this is irony isn't that awesome how God does that Wow, the Bible shows Jesus, who is this suffering servant. He's a humble. He's, and, and all through the Bible, Jesus is the son of the silver thread that goes through the whole entire word of God. And what do you see all around him? Arrogant kings filled with pride. Xerxes, Nebuchadnezzar, people. Uh, 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 Nero, all the different people in the word of God that are arrogant. And the only one who's going to reign in the end is the Lord Jesus. Yeah. Contrast is all over the Bible. And look what you have here you have contrast in Ecclesiastes. Verse number 10, chapter 10, verse 12. This is how it is said in the original Hebrew. Words of the mouth of the wise, gracious, and the lips of the fool swallow him up. Words of the wise, gracious, but the lips of the fool swallow him up. You're not going to forget this. You're going to remember this next time you see someone at a restaurant talking stupid. You're going to say he might as well just be eating himself. With those words, stick his hand down the throat, stick the other hand down the throat, and swallow until you're inside out now. And then, um, okay, next thing. This is really interesting. This this is very interesting. There are such a thing that we use as creative people with our minds called acrostics. Who knows what an acrostic is? Do you know what an acrostic is? I'll give you an acrostic. Okay, my mom knows what an acrostic is. Amen. Acrostic is. Uh, A poem in which the successive lines start with the next letter, what you're doing. Let me give you an example. Um, Let's say I wanted to make an acrostic of our Bible study tonight. Let's say I'm writing a poem about our Bible study. And I want to use the first letter of each line to give to you a message. Okay? Mm -hmm. I would say, ah, Bible Study has come. Right? Mm -hmm. And then I would say, oh, I'd say, ah. Wait, wait, wait. I gotta get this right. Ah, okay, hold on. Excuse me. I would say, ah. It is time. Time for what? Bible study has come. Oh, okay, Bible study has come. And then I said, class, is so much fun. Amen? Amen. Don't ever forget what you learned. Okay? Everything is useful. Are you seeing this? Mm -hmm. Why is everything useful? For. The Word of God is being taught. That's my shorthand. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see what I just did with this? Mm-hmm. If I were to keep going on with it, mm-hmm. what do you think the next line would start with? G. A G. Mm-hmm. For everything is good. Well, for everything is being taught. God is so good. Mm-hmm. A, B, C, F, G H. Mm-hmm. He is risen. Blah, blah, blah. We just go on and on and on. No. That's called an acrostic. Or maybe I could spell my name. C stands for charming. H stands for handsome. You know, just go on and on with it, right? Mm-hmm. I do Not not that charming or handsome. Well, what if I told you that I could give to you two examples from the Word of God where this is used? But you know why we don't catch it? Because we don't know the Hebrew. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 31. Hmm. Proverbs chapter 31 Now I know a lot of you Hadn't been to Some women's conferences And if You have heard this being taught At a women's conference I'd be very surprised What I have right here Is the Hebrew Of Proverbs chapter 31 10-31 This is what it says in the King James translation. I'm going to read you the first couple verses. Who can find a virtuous woman for a price as far above rubies? The heart of her husband safely trusts in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do good to him and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks walk. We know the verse, right? Mm -hmm. What if I told you this was an acrostic? Wouldn't be able to get it in the English though. Because how do you translate that? When I write my books, they go into Italian eventually. And what I am conscious of now is not to put anything in those books that is untranslatable. Or there's going to be a major mess when they go to translate it. For them and for me. Because I have to then rewrite write the chapter. Well, they didn't think about that when they're writing the Bible. So look at this. This is the Hebrew. Of Proverbs 31.10, which we use in women's conferences all the time. Let's notice that, I know it's hard to see, this is, it's read from left, right to left. It's not read this way, it's read this way. Verse number 10. Notice it's 22 lines. 22 lines. 22 lines with measure in it. And at the first line, it begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second line of Proverbs chapter 31, verse number 11, is Beth, which is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mm-hmm. The third line is Gemel, the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then you have the Latin, and it goes all the way down in sequential order of the next ascending letter, in, the, in other words, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. All the way down into the last line, the 22nd line, top. Which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 22 lines of poetry beginning with 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Why would Lemuel, who most people think is Solomon, do this? Well, first of all, it's creative and it's poetic. He's writing about a woman, so it's fanciful. It's charming, it's dashing, it's perhaps romantic, ideal, but then again, it's inspired, so it's a God's ideal. But maybe it's possible that when you're including, have you ever seen the Amazon logo? Anyone ever seen Amazon? Amazon, you can get everything from A to Z. This is an idea when you use the whole alphabet, you're giving the idea of all inclusive. It is nothing left out everything you need and when you read this as a hebrew person in judaism back in solomon's day you're saying to yourself this is everything i need in a woman from a to z
0: isn't
1: that interesting you know you want the 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 most interesting example of old testament acrostics is go with me to psalm chapter 119 Longest chapter in the Bible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, in the, the, the one year plan, this is all you're reading for the day.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Someone say, God's amazing. Here we thought the Bible was. Okay. Psalm 119. Does anybody see chapter divisions in there? Raise your hand if your Bible shows you chapter divisions. You should see an m- unfamiliar word maybe at the very top that says mm-hmm. Aleph. Who has that?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. What's the next chapter division? Anyone can tell me? Do your best to pray. Beth. Okay, what's the next one? Okay, why do you think those, what are, what are those, what are they talking about?
0: The
1: That's the Hebrew alphabet. Well, why? Maybe we're just trying to make, or is it possible that if we looked at the Hebrew, we would see that each line begins with the letter from the Hebrew alphabet? Here you go. I got it for you. Here we are. The first eight verses of Psalm chapter 119 begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second eight lines begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The third eight lines begin with the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And guess what? It goes all the way! So if you take 8 times 22, you get the amount of verses that are in Psalm chapter 119. There are 22 chapter divisions, 8 verses each, all going with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is how the Old Testament was written. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Makes you want to go learn Hebrew and all this stuff to find out what's going on. And guess what? It's rhyming. Makes you wonder what the praise and worship was like in the temple. I was talking to a guy who was into Hebrew songs, and he told me that the reason why we... Can't really fully appreciate the 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 uh, the songs then, is because nowadays the measures and scales that we use in church are, you know, um, thank you, Lord, I just wanna thank. He says that in Hebrew, it's like listening to uh, Middle Eastern music. Ah, 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 ah. Scales are very erratic and quick, like this, but it's all rhyming. It's beautiful, beautiful music, and that's what's going on in the Psalms. So that is an acrostic. So unless you know Hebrew, you're not going to catch it. That's why I'm telling you that these are written. Let me go back to what I first said. These are written to evoke your emotions. Not to make you intellectually dissect it and pull out some kind of doctrine to support your point on what this is supposed to mean. This means right here that God is saying that this, no, no, no. What it means is that there's a thankful heart, somebody that's in distress, somebody that's upset and is trying to find a way to express themselves before the Almighty God. for all it means. And using what they know best to do it and that's music, scales and measures and poetry. Amen. I'm going to skip over the um different ty- I'm going to skip over uh, what we talked about irony and uh, similes and metaphors hyperbole exaggerated beliefs like my tears have been my food all day night all day and night it's, obviously he wasn't eating that that's just hyperbole I'm going to skip that cuz we talked about it in our introduction Um Let me just say this there are seven different types of poetic categories that we can learn from And uh, I want to get to our exercises before we leave tonight. Number one, there are laments. Laments, this is the biggest group. Laments are um, over 60 psalms are laments. And this is usually somebody that's kind of complaining to God or upset. Crying out to God, asking for his deliverance. The whole book of... Lamentations is nothing but laments. And the whole book of Lamentations is acrostic in nature. The six, to six, cha- six of the seven chapters all are acrostics, like I just showed you. So you see, the whole book is poetic. And it's someone complaining to God, help me, help God, the city has been broken down, the walls, what are we going to do? Let me take poetry and add it to that. You got it? There's individual laments, Psalm, uh, Psalm, Psalm chapter 3. Many are they that... Trouble me. Man, are they that save my soul? Some people only know that because of Byron Cage. Byron Cage didn't write that. (laughs) That's David complaining. Everyone's around me. This is, God, help me. So that means that it's okay for when you lament every now and then. You should lament before God. God, I can't find a spouse. There's no man in the land, God. You know, whatever. Then there are thanksgiving psalms. Used to express joy to the Lord because something had gone well. Psalm thirty-four, Psalms chapter one twenty-four, rejoice, all Israel, all you people, be glad. This is uh, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. Then there's hymns of praise that focus on God for who He is. Psalm one hundred and eleven, blessed be God, Maker of heaven and earth. It's not there's no any, there's only there's really no reason other than He's God and He's wonderful. Then there's salvation history. This means that Israel is reviewing the history of God's salvation hand and delivering the people of Israel out of Egyptian oppression. And it gives to you a synopsis of what it was like being in Egypt, even though David wasn't there or whoever was writing it, they have the history of that time. So they talk about God, you've been faithful, you carried us out. This is Psalm 105. Then there are Psalms of celebration and affirmation. And here you see covenant renewal liturgies, which means that Perhaps you take the covenant at Sinai, which is Psalm 50, Psalm 81, and in poetic form, the psalmist is expressing the need for Israel to renew that covenant. Let's get back to getting back to what we used to get back to, you know? Then there's kingship psalms, which deal with the king. We're going to look at a kingship psalm in just a little bit when it talks about the psalmist's prayer for the king. Not God, the king at the time, the king of Israel. We're going to see in just a minute Solomon's prayer for himself when he became king. There's enthronement psalms. That means that this is to uh, celebrate the enthronement of the king of Israel. And then there's songs of Zion, which is uh, things about the wonder of Jerusalem, how it's God's holy city. And, and then there's wisdom psalms, which are much like Proverbs, can be read along with the book of Proverbs. You'll see that in Psalm chapter 36. And then there's songs, uh, psalms of trust. Like Psalm chapter 91. Okay? What are the benefits of the book of Psalms? They can be used as a guide to worship. They teach us how we can relate to God honestly. Someone say, be honest with God. If you're mad at God, go tell Him you're mad at Him. You won't be mad at Him by the time you're done. (laughs) If you're sad, tell God you're sad. I don't get to my confessions until after I get done being honest. If you're afraid, tell God you're afraid. Mm -hmm. Soak your couch with tears. Amen. Amen. The Psalms demonstrate the importance that reflection and meditation on God, what it can do for us. Okay, let's do an exercise. Let's go to Psalm chapter 72. Psalm 72. And we're going to go through this tonight and we're going to see how that we can interpret a psalm. Let's say, you know, you want yourself, to go through. Are you enjoying this tonight? Is anyone learning something new? That's why I do this class. You know, it's Tuesday night, it's low-key. I don't advertise it hard. You know, I just do the class. Let's take chapter 72, 12 through 14. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to pretend that you're by yourself uh, in your devotion time and you want to take a psalm and you want to get the most meaning out of it, okay? Can we do that? There are four things that I've taught in the past about how to take a text and pull out what God wants for us as believers to know, understand, and apply it to our lives. So basically we're we're switching now from maybe understanding the book of Psalms and the poetic books to really learning how to use it for what it's supposed to be meant. Is that okay? Okay. Let's read it. For he delivers the needy when he calls... The poor and him who has no helper. Now, do you see? Do you already see? Right now, this is scaly, right? For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. See the poetry going on. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. Now, you're seeing repeated words. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious in the blood is their blood in his sight. Wow! It sounds like it's rhymy. I mean, maybe in our English it rhymes. Maybe in the Hebrew it rhymes. I didn't look at it. But at least we can start to see that there is a definite structure to this that is indicating it's supposed to be taken in song, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at a passage like this, what is the first thing that I've taught that we should do? First thing that we should do is we should decide what this would have meant to a biblical reader at the time. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. What does this mean to someone who was living in ancient Israel? Well, let's do what uh, we've taught. And first, let's try to use, maybe to answer this question, let's try to find out what it means. By using what we just taught you. How's that? In verse number 12, He will rescue the poor when they cry to Him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend Him. Do you know us? that's parallelism, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Each line has a similar meaning. He'll rescue the poor when they cry to him. He'll help the oppressed who have no one to defend him. So rescue the poor. Who is the poor? The oppressed. Why is the poor crying? Because no one is there to defend them. When it says they cry, who are they crying to? The king. Answer, if they cry, are they just out in the streets crying? Who are they yelling at? They're yelling at the king. Hear us, king. We have nobody. We are poor. We are homeless. We've been put out. We've been laid on the streets. There's no system here to help the poor. We can't get ahead. Will you help us, king? And this is, you know, the background of this is this is Solomon before he became king, praying and asking God for wisdom, and he's making a commitment now. And he's saying that this king, me, when you put your wisdom and your justice and your anointing on me as king, that what I'm going to do is I'm going to rescue the poor when they cry to me are you seeing this now okay so you see the parallelism you see the developmental parallelism in the second line look at what it is he feels pity for the weak and needy and he will rescue them can okay, you see how this is one thought now he's walking down the street he sees the weak and he pities them so why will he why does he feel pity uh, he feels pity so if he, he why does he rescue him because he feels pity for him okay And then you see the the, the verse number 14. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for the lives are precious to him. So when the king is redeeming them out of oppression and violence, why is he doing this? So when someone walks by and says, king, why did you help the poor person? Why did you do this? Because he's an upright king. And the poor are precious to him. Now, this is different. Look at the contrast now from all the other kings of Israel. Is this different from Absalom? Of course it is. Is this different from Saul? Absolutely. Who? But what about this? Do you see a foreshadow, a type? Who does it sound like to you? Who do you know was a great king that walked around and helped out the poor and had compassion on the needy? Jesus. Right? This has definite, definite prophetic element in this. This is not just about Solomon. And yes, it was about Solomon. But guess what? Now we're seeing the introduction of the prophetic that goes into this. Think about what it means for your life. God may give to you a song. That's why I say it. when open your heart to be used psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, when you're praying and the Spirit of God has comes over you and you feel something, it is not unusual for it to come out and have scale and measures to it. You start speaking to yourself in that psalm and hymn and spiritual song. It's applying to your life, but write it down and look at it. You might see that what God has put in your life not only parallels your life, but maybe the suffering of Jesus or parallels your life. And something like this, there are usually elements in there that you can see. This is a bigger picture picture has to do with me and jesus has to do with me and the father has to do with me and the eschaton that's yet to come wow that god would put his inspiration in us and make it three dimensional four dimensional sometimes isn't it amazing wow okay let's uh enter into the emotional world if we're trying to decide are you guys enjoying this tonight Okay, let's enter into the emotional world, perhaps, of what this meant for somebody in that day. Picture, uh, the, and imagine the needy calling out. You know, you have to ask yourself these questions. What would it be like if you were needy? What would it be like if you are homeless? How fortunate is it for the one calling that the king has compassion and defends the one that's needy? What a relief the poor person feels when he finds out that the king in Israel is someone who defends him. And... Uh, So that's part of the discovery, what it meant for a person in in that day. And then um, the next step when you're taking apart any passage you find in the Word of God is to differentiate between, now that we know what it meant for the Old Testament saints, what does it mean for us today? And to do that, you have to decide, first of all, what are the differences? Mm -hmm. What are the differences? Well, number one, we don't have a king. We have a democracy. They had a, 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 you know, really a kingship. So we don't have a king. We have an elected president who can't do whatever he wants. He can only extend his executive power as much as Congress and, you know, the judges allow him to do it. Um, And really, here in America, the poor are looked upon pretty favorably. There are a lot of poor people, but there is a government that really has a lot of compassion for the poor. And some would even argue too much compassion. That's politics, but at least that argument exists here. Whether So we really don't have the same situation. So how are we going to decide what this means? You're looking at a time where I guess the king before him didn't care about the poor. Didn't have compassion for the poor. So that's the difference. But the third step is we decide what theological principle that we can find in this text is. So now we have people that summarize what we've had. We've just discovered we have people that are crying out and the king is saving them. And this is a result of his righteous reign. And here we have uh, United States, that maybe governments that fear the poor. So what theological principle do we get from this text? How about it's righteous and just for government leaders to look upon the poor with compassion and help their cause. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. That's what God's desire and then the next thing you'd want to do is you want to see if that the fourth step is see if that theological principle fits with the rest of the Bible. This seems to be what we're finding out from this text. Does it fit with the rest of the Bible? Well, you know the New Testament teaches that it's important to remember the poor and provide for them. Luke four eighteen. Jesus when he came, what did he do? He healed the broken hearted, binding up their wounds. He preached deliverance to the captives, recovery inside of the blind, and uh, deliverance to the poor. So Jesus was a king and he did it, then I guess it's good. And then you have the apostles that told Paul in Galatians chapter 2, hey, you can go out there and do all the missionary journeys you want. Go wherever you feel God's leading you to go, but don't forget about us poor saints in Jerusalem. Send some money to us. And you even see without... See, sometimes we try to just find out... I'm going to teach you this when I teach about the epistles. Is that we spend a lot of time trying to get out... See, systematic theology, I was telling Della this before we got here, systematic theology is this approach to the Word of God where we try to find what is the Bible saying and extract it from the Bible. Biblical theology is different. Biblical theology makes you figure out how theology is actually being worked out from the lives of the people. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily read it, you see it Mm -hmm. in their actions based upon how you interpret it. So we sometimes look at Well, I need an offering verse for today. Well, you know, that's really, you know, maybe the easiest way to go about doing something is take an offering verse. But if you really want to see how offering was treated in the New Testament, let's see the perhaps uh, urgency or the devotion that maybe Paul had to taking up his offering from the saints in Jerusalem. Now, that's a little bit tougher of a task. You'll find out that Paul spent the majority of the end of 2 Corinthians talking about an offering. And we talked about this in class that he was taking up for those saints. You'll find out that he mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter sixteen. That the saints in Corinth uh, stopped giving. The saints in Macedonia begged Paul to to help with that offering, and Paul sent Titus down to tell the Corinthians to get themselves in gear before the Macedonians came down. You can draw more from understanding offering by understanding this. Goes far, a lot more farther than just pulling out one verse that was something that was loosely said. Mm-hmm. And so, if you want to find out how God really feels towards the poor, other places in the Bible, well, then what you need to do is really get into that word mm-hmm. and read the stories and make your own notations. This is how God feels about giving mm-hmm. and how he feels about the poor when the Apostle Paul strained himself just to remember the saint of Jerusalem. It tells you that. The Apostle Paul really valued the poor, maybe more than he actually had a chance to write about. Just by his, the way he exerted himself. And so, how should we as Christians in step number five, you ask yourself, how do we apply this principle now that we've seen it in the, in the Old Testament? Psalm chapter 72, we've seen that uh, you know it's uh, something that God approves and it's in the Bible. Then you ask yourself, how do we apply it today? Uh, you ask yourself those questions. So maybe one way is that you do what is in your power above and beyond to help the poor and the needy. And you also look for government leadership that is willing to help the poor. Elect your leaders. We don't have kingships, but you elect your leaders. So do you see how we just took this 13th and 14th verse of Psalms, poetic in nature, kind of broke it down, and now now we can derive, we can safely land at practical theology that we know what we need to do? We need to help the poor
0: because
1: it's right in the eyes of God and it doesn't change. Well, it's not to teach about the poor tonight. But what I'm trying to show you is how to arrive at something within this context. Right? Okay, I want to do one more exercise. I'm going to teach you how to do a personal personal, um, verse-by-verse analysis of a chapter. Okay? Do you guys like this? We have uh, 30 minutes. This is the big exercise for tonight. Someone say amen. amen.
0: amen.
1: Are you guys getting something out of this class? Yes.
0: Yes.
1: Well, I hope you guys are because, you know, I spend about eight hours putting these together. Should I write a book on this? I should write a book on this. Amen. Mm-hmm. All right. I got a third book I'm working on now. I'm halfway done with it. It's on fools. Amen. 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 You'll find out that fools are not the people that annoy you. Fools are the ungodless people that do not consider God in any of their ways it's very interesting that fools are not who you expect them to be sometimes and i started to study on fools i started to realize wow what a tragic ending for them Mm. so the book will be out i'm sure hopefully by the end of the year okay number one let's go to uh psalm chapter one how about that this approach is a devotional approach that you can take Let's say you just want to study the Bible better. I told you in the flyer that if... Are you getting tired of going round and round? You know, did you guys see the flyer? of Going round and round trying to find out how to just study the Bible. What does this passage mean? I hope that this helps you with the Psalms a little bit. Mm -hmm. Will it help you with the Psalms? Yes. Okay, a little bit. You know, and and like I said, we can't cover everything. We could do a whole eight weeks on just the Psalms itself. But at least, you know, it should make you want to go deeper. And if you have questions, Facebook me, write me, or whatever. I'll, I'll give you some ways that you can expound on these things. The one thing I want to do is drive in you a, a love and desire for the Word of God. Mm-hmm. To just want to go deeper and know that there's a way that you can go deeper just than reading the same book you bought at craft family Christian story, you know? The same book on breakthrough, the same book on five laws of whatever. This is really where to go. Find out what's actually in this book. Am I doing a good job? Are we learning new yeah. things? Okay, all right. Uh, let's get this in the English Standard Version, the ESV. Now, I've recommended several versions of the Bible for serious study. The um, ESV and the NIV, actually. I know the NIV gets a bad reputation, but it's pretty good, I think. And then if you want devotional reading where you're just really not concerned about just picking apart words and stuff, the NLT is pretty good. It's pretty pretty true to what according to what scholars say about it. Don't forget next or this Friday night's uh, supernatural. I will not be acting like a teacher. I will be preaching. Amen. Okay, we have six verses in Psalms chapter one. Let's try and you know uh, you know when I have washcloths and I'm done in the shower and I wring them out, right? Mm-hmm you you trying to make orange juice, you should take an orange and you just pound it you get all the juice out. Let's do this with Psalm chapter 1. So you say, well, there's a lot in here. How do I get out? Where do I even start? you want to try and Do you think we can do it in the next 25 minutes?
0: Yeah.
1: I think we can get a lot of juice out of it in 25 minutes. But let's not pay attention to the juice we get out. Let's pay attention to how we're getting the juice out so you can do it at home for yourself, okay? Mm-hmm. This is one approach that we're going to talk about. This is how to do a verse-by-verse thing. very first thing that you should do is you should um, write the verse out. In your own words so look at it in order to write the verse out in your own words I'm not going to use the blackboard we don't have enough time um, look at the verse read it and write it out in your own paraphrase this is your opportunity to do the 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 new Chris Palmer version or whatever you are the new living Shara Cooley version of the Bible so you make a list This is really good for you when you just got maybe a half hour, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, I don't know, an hour, whatever you want to do. The Tanya sends me her homework. I love it when she does that. I get to see that she's really learning something, you know, I mean, I'm not not—I'm not going to get a degree from me. I'm not going to hand you some type of certificate or anything. I'm just going to applaud you if you do well and tell you when you don't. <laughs> but I have teachers that mark me down. I got teachers too, you know, so. Okay, so you take the first... The way I would do it is I'd put verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, and verse number 6. Okay, mm-hmm. so then let's, let's put the verses in our own words. But here's what I want you to understand. May they be your own words, not the words that are here. Get away from what the Bible is trying to say and put it in your own creative language. Sometimes when you tell people to do these things, they just put the verse down itself. No, no, no. Really think of your own way of saying it, okay? So let's read what we got. Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Well, right away, we're already seeing parallelism going on. Mm-hmm. That these four lines are all saying the same thing in a different way. But there's an interesting element to this. Stand, excuse me, walk, stand, sit. Walk, stand, sit. Walk, stand, sit. Walk, stand, sit. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But let's say this. In my own terms, I'm going to give you the first one. The blessed man does not live like the wicked. Pretty simple, right? Mm -hmm. Verse number two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. How about the blessed love to consider the word of God at all times? Mm -hmm. See, day and night is not like... That is another way of saying all the time. Well we gotta meditate at the day and at night. When you wake up you better meditate. When you go to bed at night you better meditate. If you don't do that, you're breaking the word of God. I'm telling you what, just sometimes I start my day and I ain't pick the Bible up. Well, you know, you just that's dangerous, brother Palmer. No, 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 because I'm always considering it in my heart. And how about back then they didn't have personal scrolls next to their drawer? They had to walk down to the temple. He's talking about consider it before you do something stupid.
0: <laughs>
1: How about that? It's written in my heart. You know, even but here's even the thing about it. People that went to school back then, they had to get it in their heart. They had to memorize that stuff. Most of them people, you know, I read somewhere that a good Jewish rabbi in the days of Jesus could repeat the law of Moses to you Backwards. If I say my name is Chris, I would say Chris is name my. Chris is name my. My name is Chris. Chris is name my. Well, that's like four, and I had to really think about it. Can you imagine? You have a hundred thousand words, and you just boom, 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 Verse number three, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Well, that's verse number three, the blessed who considers the word of God will be like a fruitful tree by the water. No as I didn't say, well, you know, that's, or, or will just be fruitful like a tree by the water. Okay? Number four, the wicked are not so, but the, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. What I put is the wicked don't last. They're blown away like wheat. Well, if you don't know what chaff is, you're not going to get the picture. So yeah, that would be, you can you say, I don't have commentaries. Google it. Same thing now as it was then. Verse number five. When the judgment com- uh, uh, uh therefore the wicked don't will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. When the judgment comes, the wicked will be found guilty and punished. So now you've got to answer the question, what judgment is he talking about? And if he's talking about a final and eternal judgment, that's interesting because you'll find out in the Old Testament, there's very little said about the afterlife. You're looking for scriptures on heaven and hell. You never go to the Old Testament, do you? Mm-hmm. You usually go to uh, parts about when Jesus talks about it. Right. But this here, I do believe, is talking about the final judgment. I believe that the writer was being prophetic. Mm-hmm. Most theologians think the same thing, too. Mm-hmm. Either way, there is a judgment that's laid up for wicked people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you would have to assume that there has to be some type of final judgment for wicked people because, you know, a lot of wicked people die really nice. With millions of dollars in their bank account next to their loved ones. And you say, wow. Eternity awaits still. you know, I don't take any pleasure knowing that judge that wicked people are going to get what they deserve. But it's still a fact, matter of fact. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verse number 6, I put the Lord judges justly because he knows the righteous from the wicked. So you see how we've just put those in our own language. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's do the next thing. Let's ask questions. Let's make observations. This is the point where now that we have it listed, you have your verses written down. The next thing you do is you write the same thing down. Verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And start making questions next to each verse. Okay? Mm. This is what I got in verse number 1. doesn't have to be questions that can be answered. They could be whatever. Observations, things that you noticed. Okay? Verse number 1. Living an ungodly lifestyle is characterized by walk, stand, sit. This is a progression. Pretty interesting, right? Mm. Verse number two. The law of Moses, the perfect ways of God, how does this pertain to us as New Testament believers, and should we be in the law every day? Basically, what I'm saying is this doesn't say his delight is in the New Testament letters of Paul. It's not talking about the canon of New Testament scripture that we put together in the 4th century, the Council of Laodicea. It's talking about the law of Moses. Mm. So can this pertain to our lives as believers? When I told you the other day that we don't follow the law, uh oh, do we have a problem with Psalm One? No, we don't. No. But I think I think we can reconcile that pretty easily. But it's still something that we should take in consideration because you have literalists that will come along and say, "Well, you better not just read the Psalms. We got to do all to keep all the Jewish feasts and all the Jewish rituals." Don't think so. Verse number three is this saying that everything that we do shall prosper? What about those who meditate and don't get ahead? One thing is certain. We'll be fruitful. But what about, what about everything? Does that mean I can go play the lottery and win it? Hmm. Does that mean I can go to Chuck E. Cheese and play a game and get a hundred tickets every time I throw a ball? Cam? Huh? Well, what is, what happened, verse number four, what happens when chaff blows away? What is chaff? Chaff, what is this? What is chaff? It requires you to do some research. Okay. Is the Bible teaching a final judgment? Okay, I got ahead of myself here. Um and look at verse number 6. Does the Lord knowing the way of the righteous seems to substitute the idea that his God is going to bless them. So, uh basically what I'm trying to say right there is um well, I don't want to open up this can of worms. All I'm saying is the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish and um the way of knowing the way of the righteous it doesn't say that God is going to bless the righteous but he says the Lord knows the way of the righteous so it's kind of inferring he's going to bless them. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about representation because I didn't I, I skipped over for sake of time but mm-hmm. it's like um you know um okay I'll give you an example of what representation is um let's say after uh let's say after let's say pretend hypothetically get Cameron has been bugging his mom Sarah um to take him to Dairy Queen for ice cream. Mm-hmm. Well Cameron has been asking her all night but maybe he's been good and so um, they leave and Cameron says to his mom, mom are you going to make me happy and put a smile on my face? Well he didn't say are you going to take me for ice cream he told you what that ice cream would do for him it would make him smile but what's going to make him smile? I, he asked the same question but he substituted for the effect of what the ice cream would do We do this all the time so the, the saying the Lord knows the way of the righteous is a substitute way of saying "God's going to bless people because he can't withhold blessing from those that do right. You get it? You got to keep eye out for this stuff. Do You see how this is making sense to the Bible? They actually talk the way we do. But you know what the problem is? We don't know how we talk.
0: <laughs>
1: you know what the hardest part of taking my Greek classes was and learning how to translate Greek was? You have to relearn English. <laughs> it's the hardest part. Okay. Let's go here. The next thing you do is, after you've done this now, so you've made a list, and you have... This questions and observations. The next thing you want to do is you want to support it from other parts of the Bible. So you make cross references. So you have the verse, blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, Psalm chapter 119, verse 1. Let me read it. Psalm 119. says... Blessed are those whose ways is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Walk in the law of the Lord. What does that mean? It just means to live according to. See, that's idiomatic. It's an idiom. Um, just means to live. Are you guys learning something tonight? Okay. Uh, how about verse number two, uh, where it says that his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he does meditate day and night. I know we can think of one, Joshua one eight right? Alright, so we got this is other places in scripture. Now we're opening up to ourselves new possibilities. If one of these scriptures or chapters really strikes home with you, you can go to this chapter and you can do the same procedure on the next point of scripture that maybe oh Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, they inherit the kingdom of God. Now your own Jesus letters. You can take this same procedure and apply it to that and squeeze some more juice. Right? You can not just have lemon, you can have lime, lemon and lime. Okay, verse number three. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water you know the idea of fruitfulness how about Jesus that you may bear fruit oh okay very nice pretty cool now we got Jesus and the psalms sounds the same thing that supported in the new testament and the old testament god's desires for us to live fruitful abundant lives you know this is so simple but is the verse kind of starting to come full circle now but you know why it's coming for full circle full circle do you know what i have just done for you You can thank me later. (laughs) I have gotten you away from the technicality of it and have now allowed you to see the bigger picture. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The truth of God's word is not found in every individual word. I've taught this in my book. The truth of God's word is found in the big idea. Don't smash and break apart words. Mm -hmm. Go for the idea. The Bible will be a whole lot more meaningful to you okay matthew proverbs twenty uh let's go here verse number four the wicked are not so, but are like the trap that chaff that drives away the wind well proverbs chapter two verse twenty two says but the wicked will be cut off from the land sounds pretty uh and the treasures will be rooted out of it that's parallel that's uh it's a synonymous parallelism right there. I gave you another verse. But the wicked will be cut from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Now, let me just stop here and just show you a synonymous parallelism. Notice what it says. The wicked will be cut from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Here's my question to you. Is it the same person or is it talking about two different types of people? The wicked and the treacherous. That's exactly the same. The same, just using a different word. It's like saying, I caught the mouse. That dirty thing didn't have a chance. The dirty thing, what is, are you still talking about the mouse? Absolutely still talking about the mouse. Someone might try and build an idea. Well, you see, the wicked are cut out of the land, but you know, the treacherous, they're rooted out. So there's a whole difference here. No, 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 no. It's okay to be wicked, but treacherous is even worse. No, same thing. Uh, verse number 5, Matthew twenty-five thirty-two, and verse number 6, Psalm 5, verse 12. So after you do that, then you go on to step 4. I'm almost done. We'll be out of here by 9, I promise. Uh, record any insights you get from each verse. Um, any insights? This is left open to you. Now you've done your share of study. So now record your insights. You've done your due diligence and study in it. You've looked up words. You found out what chaff is. You looked up the idea about the final judgment. You've done everything that you're supposed to do. So what did you come away with? Verse number one. Let me give you my thoughts when I did this exercise. There's a progression to sin. These are, this is, see, now I'm giving you preaching points. I just built for you a six-point sermon. Mm-hmm. There's a progression to sin. Mm-hmm. Sin usually starts with association until we're comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Stand, walk. You know, you're walking with people talking, mm-hmm. chit-chatting, talk. You ever walk someone and what happens? Usually, have you ever walked? You know, with someone and you're walking, talking, and if you like the conversation, you know what? Stop. You know what you guys do? You stop. Mm-hmm. You start talking, yeah, yeah. You've been talking a long time. You know what? You want to sit down? Want to get dinner? Sure. Now you're sitting. Now you're sitting there. Now guess what? You're associated with that person because you're sitting with them. That's how it is with sin. You get comfortable with it after you spend too much time around it. Um, verse number two: The word of God should be our delight. And to answer your question about the law, Jesus. I'm going to preach open. I'm going to preach on this on Friday night when Jesus talked about. Boy, I got some good stuff for you Friday night. Don't miss it. I was putting the sermon, my stuff, what I believe the Spirit of God inspires uh, me to minister on on Friday night. And, uh, oh man, I was like, I need to preach this now. I was going to Facebook part of it. I was like, no, I ain't doing, I'm just going to preach it on Friday night. But Jesus was the final interpreter of the law, being a rabbi. He had the permission and right to interpret it any way that he wanted to. And he came to fulfill the law. And fulfill the law doesn't mean he just obeyed every jot and tittle of it. Fulfill the law means that, yes, he was obedient to the law, but he also interpreted it to its highest degree and in, in the spirit. And he broke it away from a bunch of religious rules and technicalities and got down to the heart of it all. And so the thing about the law is that though we don't keep the law about it, our heart should be in the same place that Israel's should have been in when they were keeping the law. That hey, good. That's not what I'm preaching Friday night, but that's what I'm trying to tell you now. That yes, the law is, but we should keep the word of God. And what is the law? We don't, you know, the Bible, is, the New Testament is, the New Testament was, see, when Paul wrote these letters in the New Testament, these are what we call occasional When you read the New Testament, Paul wasn't saying, I wonder what those Thessalonians are doing. I'm going to write some dogma and doctrine form here. Yeah, here we go. Here, now, just go do that and obey this. No, no. He was responding to problems. And the only reason he was writing these letters is because there was an occasion to write. Mm -hmm. So he never really laid out systematic theology for us. He didn't even have any intent to do that. Nobody in the apostolic days did. As a matter of fact, when it came down to laying out systematic theology, we find in Acts chapter 15, the, they were. They had a question about should we what, what should the Gentiles do? Should they keep the law? And Paul says, well, keep them away from blood and keep them away from fornication and uh, make sure they give to the poor. This was still a challenge for them to lay out any rules. Do you know why? Because we're under the administration of the Spirit. We have the Holy Ghost inside of us. It lives inside of our hearts. And we should keep the Holy Spirit's leading with the same fervency as people kept the Word of God. So it's the heart of the matter. Amen. Amen. Verse number 3-4, through four, there's a contrast. Both sin and righteousness have consequences now and eternally. Um, verse number 5, not being able to stand means to be found guilty. So it says, blessed, they won't be able to stand in the judgment. The wicked can't stand in the judgment. What do you mean stand? That's idiomatic for you're guilty. All right. So there's guilt that comes to sin. There's guilt that comes to wrongdoing. There's guilt that you cannot escape. And unless someone takes that guilt from you, you're going to pay pay the penalty. Well, that's the entrance of Jesus now. Now it comes back to Jesus. And then the Lord is omniscient, omnipresent, and that makes him a just judge. Verse number six, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, so he sees, he's watching. Therefore, we can trust that in the judgment, he was always watching so he can make the fair assessment. Amen. Amen. And then the next thing you do is step number five, you write out a personal application for each verse. How do you apply the verse to your life personally? For each verse. Well, what do you do with verse number one? I put in verse number one, I must not associate with sin at all lest I get comfortable around it and find myself acting like a sinner and being a sinner. Okay? Verse number two, the word of God should be considered at all times and I should, and should be what I use to order my life. When I'm obedient to the word of God, it makes life much more enjoyable. This is a little tidbit. People that are disobedient to the Word of God will never enjoy the Word of God. People that are obedient to the Word of God are usually the ones that you find enjoying it. So if you find someone that loves the Word of God, that usually is an indication that they're probably living a pure lifestyle. You find someone that doesn't like the Word of God, something's off. Verse number three, I can trust that I will prosper and be fruitful in life if I consider the Word of God, even if not this life, eternity awaits. You know, I have to speak corporately that there's people that are living holy, pure lifestyles in other countries that don't have capitalism, that they live, I've been to these places, I've, I've seen Bulgarians and Gypsies living in impoverished areas, but they love God and they give and they tithe. Well, they don't have capitalism, they don't have the United States. So what I do understand is that Jesus will reward them, if not this life, the next one. And then wicked people won't last verse number four verse number five there's an eternal side of things only the righteous who order their lives by the word of god will be justified in the judgment verse number six the lord knows what i've been through even when i've been persecuted for being righteous he will vindicate me so you don't spend your time and your energy trying to achieve vindication you can let god do that for you and spend your time and your energy in the word of god amen, amen. enjoy class did you enjoy class tonight yeah, were you blessed by it yeah.
0: now that you've heard the light of today connect with us Go to our website, lightoftoday.org, write us at P.O. Box 403, wald Lake, Michigan, 48390, or tweet Chris Palmer at twitter.com forward slash Chris Palmer. Our podcasts are free and updated regularly, so make sure to share them with a friend and tune in again to The Light of Today with Chris Palmer.